Hi, listeners. Catherine Gorman here. We wanted to take a minute before we start today's show for an announcement. So Talking Machines is very excited to announce that we are media partners with the Rework Deep Learning Summit that's going to be held here in Boston on May 26th and 27th of this year, 2015. Our very own Ryan Adams is going to be there giving a talk, and you can be there too. Rework has given our listeners the chance to get a discount on tickets, so you can get 20% off your ticket by using the code TALKINGMACHINES, all one word, all caps, when you purchase a ticket at checkout. You can get more information about the event on our website, thetalkingmachines.com, and click on the link that says Media Partners. Thanks, and on with the show. You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, I was doing some background reading about Bayesian nonparametrics, and I came across the phrase, the Indian buffet process. And uh, I kept reading, and I came across the, the phrase, the Chinese restaurant process. But I thought there was no free lunch. So <laughs> is everyone in machine learning just really hungry all the time? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so yeah, the, you know, the no free lunch theorem is this idea that we've talked about before, which is that you can't, you know, you can't have sort of have one model and one set of assumptions that's going to apply all the time right, and allow you to generalize. Um, but these these other fun ideas like the like the Chinese restaurant process and the Indian buffet process are are two really kind of cool examples and kind of they're kind of like uh, stories associated with particular models from Bayesian nonparametrics. Hmm. And they, they correspond to two kind of different views on the world um, about how we might model data. Mm-hmm. So here's two different things we might think about. So one of them is something we talk about a lot, which is the idea of clustering. So we have a set of objects. Each of these objects belongs to a single category. So maybe we're talking about animals, and every animal belongs to a particular species. And you can characterize it entirely by what group it belongs to. And the Chinese restaurant process is a particular way to reason about that. And so let's imagine that we have like n animals, mm-hmm. and maybe there's, you know, maybe it's n distinct species, or maybe they're all one species. They're all cows or something, mm-hmm. um, or but probably what they are is is maybe you know a few cows, a few horses, and a few pigs, and kind of an interesting variety of of different things. And the Chinese restaurant process is a way to think about random partitions of uh, of such objects, and um, and it has the story goes like this. Imagine that there's a there is a Chinese restaurant with an infinite number of tables. Got it. The first customer comes into the restaurant and sits at the first table and orders a dish. Then the second customer comes in and is going to flip a coin between either sitting at the table with this uh, you know with the first customer mm-hmm. or starting his own new table. And so after the two customers have come in, they're either both sitting at one table or they're sitting at two different tables. And so that's two possible outcomes or partitions of two people. Either they're together or they're separate. Mm-hmm. Later customers continue to come in, and they're going to make a decision about whether to sit at one of the tables that's currently occupied or to start their own new table. And the idea is that they're going to sit at an existing table with a probability that's proportional to its popularity. Hmm. So if there's a lot of people currently sitting at the table, then uh, then maybe they're more likely to sit there. Um, and then with some sort of vanishing, you know, probability is getting smaller and smaller, they start completely novel tables. And then what happens is after n people have come into the restaurant, then you have, uh, you know, some number of tables are occupied with different people sitting at them. And you can view this as a partition over the n people. 
And, uh, and so this kind of has this property that sort of the rich get richer, so the popular tables kind of continue to be popular. I, I think a better name for this would be like the high school lunch table process, <laughs> where like, you know, there's like the cool kids and everyone, everyone wants sit to their sit table, the but then kids. sometimes people have to go sit by themselves, but maybe they get lucky and their friends come in and sit with them and so on. And what's absolutely amazing about, about the Chinese restaurant process is that actually the distribution over partitions that you get it doesn't depend on the order that the people come into the restaurant. And this is a property called exchangeability. That we'll, uh, that we'll talk about kind of a little bit more in a, in a minute. But you also asked about the Indian buffet process, yeah. which is kind of like another cool idea. The idea with the Chinese restaurant process is everybody has a distinct cluster that they belong to. And, and we like that process because we like the idea of clustering. But there are other important ideas that we can think about for modeling data as well. One of them is the idea that data have latent features. Mm -hmm. So imagine that if instead of talking about the species that every animal belonged to, we instead talked about properties of those animals. So how many legs does it have? So some things have two legs, others have four, six, eight, and so on. Some mm -hmm. have antennas, some have compound eyes, some have wings. You know, there's lots of different properties. And animals have some selection of these properties. And we could imagine that instead of popularity according to category, we could kind of have popularity according to features. Like if you go out and grab mm. animals at random, you're going to run into a lot of animals that have six legs. And um, and so then when you encounter some novel animal, then it probably also has six legs with high probability. So the Indian buffet process is a different kind of thing. And this was invented by uh, by Zubin Garamani, who we're going to talk to in a little bit, and um, and Tom Griffiths. And the idea is to imagine a very large restaurant that is an Indian buffet. And uh, the story is that in London, it seems like these Indian buffets have an infinite number of dishes <laughs> that you can try. And what happens is customers come into the restaurant and they grab a plate and they try some dishes. The idea is the first customer comes in and tries a random number of these possible entrees, let's say. And then, um, and then later customers try some number of new things that no one has tried before, but then also try uh, try the dishes according to their existing popularity. So mm -hmm. if a bunch of people have tried something, then they're more likely to try that thing. And the idea is that basically now every customer would be like the animal in our story, and the different properties that they have would be the dishes that they tried. So you wind up, rather than belonging to a particular category, you have several different sort of features that you might have, and which features you have, you know, you happen to have corresponds roughly to their their popularity. Again, this has the this property of exchangeability, it turns out, which is that the sort of particular dishes that you try, the particular features that this object has, those features don't depend on the order that you came into the restaurant. And so this is really cool, and in both cases, because we'd like not to worry about the kind of the particular ordering of our data. These are two sort of interesting examples of, of Bayesian nonparametric models for reasoning about the latent properties of data. And this is a very deep area. These are sort of like these cute projections of complicated and interesting infinite dimensional random objects, which is why people care about these things. So in the case of the Chinese restaurant process, it turns out that that's the distribution over uh, partitions induced by a draw from a Dirichlet process random measure, which is it's quite a mouthful. But you can think of this as basically being um, a way to produce a random density, sort of density over data. Turns out that the that these um, that you will tend to see the same datum kind of multiple times, and those will correspond to clusters. And it turns out to have this kind of infinite dimensional interpretation. And then the Chinese restaurant process type story is a kind of finite projection. So it's a very cool thing 
that uh, there's a lot of sort of mathy papers that we're not going to talk about right now. But it's a very cool idea that comes up quite a lot, which is where you can come up with kind of an infinite dimensional representation, but still reason about it using a finite computer because you're always going to be working on a finite data set. And so only a finite set of these parameters are going to be actually represented. Wow. Yeah, it's it's very, very cool stuff. In, in the case of the Indian buffet process, it's um, it arises from something called a beta process that you can reason about in a very similar kind of way. Um, and these are two examples kind of from the broader area of Bayesian nonparametrics in which you get to sort of deal with these infinite dimensional latent structures and their finite dimensional projections. Um, so the Gaussian process is another is another example for doing like random functions. And, and there's there's kind of an increasing space of, of these kinds of ideas. Um, and it's it's quite a lot of fun. We'll post some links, I think, on the on the yeah. website to different reviews. There's some uh, some really great people who work in this area. And and Ryan, we should say that you're one of them. Well, I'm I am somebody who does work in this area. It's true, <laughs> uh, but that's that's also why I mean I think it's exciting stuff. It, it's one of the what gets me excited about it is it's a way to deal with one of the main challenges in machine learning, which is trying to balance sort of parsimony and complexity in our models, right? So we are challenged with trying to come up with nice compact representations that aren't too, you know, that are kind of simple um, because we can fit these well. Uh, and at the same time, we want to be able to add capacity and model complex things when the data wants it. And this is something we're always trying to fight. Bayesian nonparametrics is a really nice sort of elegant mathematical approach to this, uh, to this thing. So we'll uh, we'll put some papers up on our website, thetalkingmachines.com, and you can read more about the Indian buffet process, the Chinese restaurant process, and maybe get some lunch afterwards. So Ryan, this week's listener question asks about how much we should rely on ourselves when we think about building artificial intelligences. Hello Talking Machines, I'm Eric Schultz, a PhD student of Cognitive Science at University College London and a big fan of your podcast. And here's a question I would like to ask you. In what sense do you think can and should machine learning be influenced by how humans think, learn and make inferences? I mean, coming from my background, it seems that people always try to apply the latest tools from machine learning and statistics in their attempt to understand how humans think. And even more in the past, certainly a lot of statistical methods actually came from psychology. But then on the other hand, if one takes a purely engineering based viewpoint and only really cares about good predictions, then at least to me, it's not that clear anymore if machine learning researchers should care at all about neuroscience and cognitive science. So, I mean, a, a almost naive example is that cars don't really have legs but um, wheels, and they can still go much faster than we humans can. So basically, my question is, what's your opinion on the interaction of these two fields in the near future? Thanks for this question. You know, this is, this is a really uh, deep question that interests me a lot, and I, that I think about a lot, and we think about it in my group a lot. And this is because I, I like to do machine learning. I'm very interested in fundamental questions about AI, um, but I also spend a lot of time thinking about about neuroscience, and we publish abstracts and you know cosine, and we work with neuroscientists and and so on in my group. And so I'm going to try to pick it apart in a couple of different ways and sort of give you some of my thoughts. I don't think this has a, a single answer. First, you asked about how statistical and machine learning models might help us improve our understanding of the brain, and this is something I think that there's a kind of a tension 
between what we might think of coarsely as computational neuroscience and theoretical neuroscience. So broadly speaking, I think it's very clear that machine learning and statistics are very, very useful for understanding the phenomena that are going on in the brain. And this is because they allow us to do to build models. They allow us to understand how to how to actually take spike recordings or fMRI or slices of the brain and actually turn those into useful interpretable data that as neuroscientists we can then understand. So that is to say using sophisticated computational techniques to understand the phenomenon that is intelligence. And this I view as being a little bit different and I think a lot of people view as being different from the question of what is the computation that is going on in the brain and using machine learning and statistical models as analogies or as sort of uh, abstractions to understand what computation is going on in a way that is separate from using those same kind of tools to actually do the analysis itself. That is to say that we still don't understand very well exactly what the computation is that the brain is doing, and yet we do understand how to build systems that seem to exhibit some degree of weak intelligence and it's, of course, the pastime of, of scientists for a long time to try to understand what those mechanisms are. The history of taking the sort of most sophisticated engineered devices of a particular era and imagining that the brain is probably doing that has a very long history. So, you know, the McCullough-Pitts neuron sort of thinking about the analogy between um, you know, binary logic and what neurons might be doing. And I'm sure at some point people imagined it in terms of hydraulics. Um, and different kinds of, you know, and various kinds of uh, control systems and so on. Over time, as people have come up with increasingly sophisticated kind of computational systems of various sorts, then we immediately imagine that that's a very useful abstraction for the brain. We very often learn things from doing that, but then we also discover the boundaries of those, of those abstractions. One of the ways that we see this a lot right now, so the deep learning world, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of discussion about the relationship between, say, you know, early visual processing and convolutional neural networks and so on. And and there are some useful abstractions there, but of course they have, um, but they they definitely do have boundaries. Um, and then there's also an agenda within sort of the theoretical neuroscience community to try to imagine that um, the brain is performing Bayesian inference at various levels and. The physiological analogs of that vary. There are different proposals uh, that different people like, but again, there's you know there's levels at which these abstractions break down. So it's a useful way to think about the kind of thing that a, that a brain might do, but it probably doesn't sort of explain everything. So um, so we need abstractions to understand the way the brain is working. I just think that's absolutely true. We we just we're not going to be able to understand what the computations are of intelligence without. Uh, general purpose abstractions for intelligent computation, but we're still trying to figure out how those should work even in the absence of the biological constraints that the brain imposes. So at any given time in science, the, we're limited by our own imagination of how intelligent computation can happen, and therefore we're limited in the abstractions that we can construct for understanding what neurons are doing in the brain. So I think it's useful, but it obviously has its limits, and it's part of an ongoing sort of scientific process of both understanding what the brain can do and also what it means to do intelligent computation. Now then the other question you asked was kind of uh, pointing the arrow the other way, which was trying to understand how we can use biological inspiration to drive, uh, well, to build better and more intelligent engineered systems. 
And you used an analogy that really resonates with me, which is, uh, you know, the idea that we um, we have cars that go very fast and much faster than um, you know than than people can run, um, and they have very little in common with the way that people run. They don't have legs. Um, and we can talk about this in a lot of different ways with flight and so on. And in fact, you know, this pushes back at some of the terminology that we use in a really fundamental way, which is that a lot of times when we talk about AI, and in fact, the phrase artificial intelligence is very anthropocentric, right? It basically imagines that the only kind of intelligence that can exist is human type intelligence. Now, it's true that we have a very limited set of examples of, of sort of natural intelligence, and they all involve sort of brains. So one of the things that I think this reveals is that in some ways, even using the phrase artificial intelligence isn't quite right. We don't talk about airplanes as being artificial flight, right? Flight is something that's a kind of a property of the world, and birds fly and airplanes fly, and neither of these is an artificial way to fly. So it feels a little bit more intellectually honest to talk about machine intelligence as a way to build things. So it's not the property of being electrified meat doing the action that's the legitimizer here. Exactly. That that it's kind of, uh, it's not quite right to have a totally anthropocentric view on what it means to be intelligent, even though brains are sort of our only example of what it means to be intelligent. But that it's, it's a limited view to imagine that it is the, that it is the last word in intelligence. So I guess the question is, you know, how should these architectures inform our, uh, inform our engineering decisions? And I, I think they should to the extent that, the, you know, that we can learn things from what these systems can do. I think, I think one of the challenges of this whole, of this whole thing is that, the, uh, that we're sort of trapped inside. And a lot of the way that people have tried to come up with engineered intelligent systems has, um, has involved a kind of introspection that is really quite challenging. I think flight is actually a wonderful example, right? Because kind of part of the key insight of like the Wright brothers was we can have fixed wing aircraft and use the things that we're good at from an engineering point of view, like rapidly rotating axles and turn that into heavier than air flight. And that perhaps people had spent decades like kind of wrestling with trying to make flappy things. And that's like not the right way to do it. Or that's like just doesn't take advantage of the things that we know how to build very well. Um, and one wonders where that trade-off is ultimately going to be in in intelligence. The sort of the like organic substrate of the brain is something that's massively paralleled and very noisy and individual units are very slow, relatively speaking, whereas uh, artificial systems like, you know, microcomputers are unbelievably fast, not particularly parallel, um, and don't have a lot of noise. And that's a pretty big gap in representation and um, and it seems likely that the, the flavor of intelligence that we achieve is going to look, you know, it's going to have to take advantage of that, that setup. So, th- th- I mean, this is a very, very deep question. And I don't think there's going to be easy answers because, of course, we don't know how to build machine intelligence. And when we do have machine intelligence, it will probably be pretty obvious how we connected the dots on our engineering side, kind of in retrospect, much in, much in the same way that we look back at fixed wing flight and say, oh, right, of course, we just needed propellers plus fixed wings and everything was fine. This whole, you know, trying to build airplanes with flapping wings was not really the thing to do. And we just don't really understand where that boundary is for thinking about machine intelligence right now. So, Eric, thanks so much for your question. If you have a question for Talking Machines, you can reach us through Twitter at TLKNGMCHNS or on Gmail, thetalkingmachines at gmail.com.
So this week, our guest on Talking Machines is Zubin Garamani. And uh, Ryan, you know him. Yeah, you know, we have known each other for, for quite a while. And he's been a really great mentor for me over the years. And we've written, uh, you know, a few different papers together. And, and yeah, he's, he's really great. Runs an incredibly strong group at the University of Cambridge. And our first question for Zubin was uh, how he ended up at the University of Cambridge. I never really expected to end up in England, but I like it there. Um, I uh, I studied in in the states. I was interested always in uh, artificial intelligence and neuroscience. I wasn't really sure whether I wanted to understand the brain or build artificial systems that learn. And so I ended up doing a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. But then I was doing kind of statistics and machine learning on the side, and it just ended up taking over my life. Um, uh, from my PhD was at MIT. Then from there, I moved to Toronto to work with Jeff Hinton, um, which was also an amazing experience. Um, and he ended up getting an offer to move to the UK to set up an institute called the Gatsby Unit. And um, that's how I ended up in the UK. He ended up not staying in the UK, but I did. <laughs> And from the Gatsby unit, which is a fantastic place, after a few years, I thought life is too easy and too good here. <laughs> and so I moved to a job where, um, at Cambridge where I have a lot more responsibilities um, and some teaching and all these other things. But Cambridge is a really fun place to be. And I got to meet Ryan there, which is... Uh, well, actually, I met Ryan b way before at the at, Gatsby at, Unit. At CMU. Well, yeah, that's true. I met you initially at the, at Gatsby, the Gatsby Unit. Yeah. But then we, I was very lucky to be able to hang out with you in, uh, at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what are you working on currently? What's your sort of most exciting research question that you're tackling? Uh, well, the thing I'm incredibly excited about right now is this project that we have called the Automatic Statistician. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a very ambitious project. What we're really trying to do is uh, automate the process of going from data to human interpretable uh, inferences about the data to, in fact, uh, a full report in English. It's like 10 to 15 pages about the data. So imagine a system. We actually have a system like this where you upload data and then... Um, it churns away and comes out with a report that you can read telling you all sorts of patterns that the computer has discovered in your data and evidence for those patterns with plots and tables and so on. What we're aiming for is kind of an artificial intelligence system for data science. And the motivation behind this is uh, that right now, as a lot of people are talking about, there are a tremendous number of people with lots of data. Everybody's talking about data. Companies, governments, you know, uh, scientists in lots of scientific disciplines. And the problem is that uh, people have the data, but they don't have uh, all the skilled machine learning researchers, data scientists, and expert statisticians to help them analyze the data. At a very practical level, what we're trying to do is uh, meet this hunger for uh, data analysis by providing a service that sort of automates parts of it. Of course, we're never going to, you know, I wouldn't say never, but we're not really planning to replace uh, data scientists and statisticians. What we're trying to do is to provide uh, an initial system that is incredibly easy to use. You click a button and that's it. You upload your data. Um, it produces an output that a lot of people can use and understand and that it helps uh, people in general to become much more efficient. So 
um, both the people who have the data and then maybe a data scientist who wants to sort of do an initial exploratory analysis can use our system. So that's the very practical reason why I think this is incredibly exciting. But there are also a deeper scientific reasons why I think this is, this is really exciting. Mm -hmm. As a field, the field of machine learning has been just developing lots of methods for analyzing data and understanding data and producing decisions and actions from data. The problem is the number of methods out there are, is just in the thousands, right? Every paper proposes a new method. And no single uh, statistician or machine learning scientist has a really good grasp of everything that's going on. So when you're confronted with a new problem, say a new data set and you want to get insight out of it, a new prediction problem or something like that, a typical person will have a handful of things that they know about. They'll try out those things until they're bored, um, and then they'll produce some answer. Mm -hmm. um, this is clearly not uh, very efficient. And really, computers can be extremely good at uh, systematically trying many, many things, um, and uh, they won't get bored like people do. And uh, we, can, we can automate the way all of this is done so that uh, if somebody tries a method and tries some bad parameters or something, might, that they might think this is never going to work. Right. But we can automate that whole process of um, finding the methods, tuning the parameters, and so on. So you're hoping that this will be sort of a, a boilerplate of methods to try, but also a way to introduce people to new, to new models? Um, yeah, in a sense, I'm hoping that... Um, from a practical point of view, it'll allow people to um, uh, see how many, many different methods could be applied to uh, their particular data. It's uh, one thing I should say is that um, it's not just that we have a list of methods that we try. Um, there's something much more conceptually interesting going on, which is that um, although machine learning is sometimes taught as a bag of tricks, okay, here are 10 things that you really need to know about. The way I've always liked to think about this field is that there are um, components like Lego bricks, and you can compose those components to create um, all sorts of interesting models. And so the underlying thing behind our automatic statistician is this thing we call um, a language of models. So like human language is composed of words, and you can compose words together to form sentences. Um, statistical models are composed of small components, little probability distributions that interface together to form uh, a, an open-ended language of possible machine learning models. So even things nobody has dreamt of before could be generated by our automatic statistician in his search for a good model for the data. Mm. So it's not just going through a list of things that are known and trying them. It's, it's generating explanations by trying out simple things and then elaborating on them until it finds a point where the complexity of the model balances the amount and complexity of the data using sort of principled Bayesian methods to trade off the complexity of the model and the data. Mm. So there's a lot of sort of what I feel, you know, personally I think it's like beautiful elegant theory behind the automatic statistician is not just sort of a, a practical tool that goes through a list of things and tries everything out. One of the things I, I really love about that setup is that a lot of these different modules have such a natural 
well, natural language uh, explanation of them. And you guys had this really cool paper at, at was it at AAAI or yeah, HKI? Uh, AAAI. So the, at the, the big annual AI conference that talked not just about how to do this kind of inference, but also how to then build a scientific document that it, that explains it. Can you talk a little bit about how that, how that yeah, works? Yeah, this is, I think, uh, uh, one of the really unique things about what we're doing. So a lot of the, the parts of the automatic statistician have been, hand, you know, have been um, tackled or, or attempted by lots of different groups. Sort of the idea of automating machine learning is something that a computer scientist naturally thinks about. But the, um, the idea of uh, taking a model and translating the components, those Lego bricks that the model is made out of, into um, sentences that explain what's going on. That's what was really novel about that AAAI paper. And, um, and the trick, I'm not sure there is a single trick to doing this. It's still quite a difficult task. And we, we, um, we have a long list of things that we want to figure out how to translate into interpretable, easy to understand human language. But one of the tricks is that you need to think about models at the right level of abstraction to be able to talk about what's going on. So for example, if you're analyzing um, a time series of data, let's say this is like airline passengers monthly over a bunch of years, then uh, what you really need to be able to think about, what the automatic statistician needs to be able to reason about and speak about is things like there's approximate periodicity um, at a with a period of one year or something like that. It needs to be able to discover things like that and then express them. And, and this is because people travel consistently at holidays. And right, like exactly. That, right? So if you, if, if you look at the data, the automatic, you know, you look at it by eye, you see this periodic pattern. The automatic statistician latches onto that really quickly, which is very satisfying because it's doing exactly what a human would do. And then it explains it to you in, in those terms. Uh, it says, you know, there is the, this increase in airline passengers over time, um, and then on top of that, there's this um, annual uh, pattern, this this periodicity that has to do with holidays and things like that. And so all of that just comes out with uh, a report that has pictures to um, to back up the claims that the automatic statistician is is making, etc. You know, all that the person had to do is upload the data and wait for a few minutes, basically. What's the response been like from the from the core statistics crowd to, to this? Okay, it's it's very interesting because um, I've I've spoken about this to uh, many audiences now. I mean, from the general public, I don't I don't know what the general public thinks. It's been blogged about um, by uh, some very good statisticians who've had uh, positive things to say about it. Like, oh yeah, that report is sort of doing what I would have done, right? And, um, which is very pleasing. I have spoken to audiences where I've gotten quite uh, a negative, aggressive uh, reaction from statisticians, um, sort of feeling that maybe I'm trying to replace them or do what, what they're oh, doing no. for a career. And this is really not the idea. And I mean, what we're trying to tackle is um, a small part of what the discipline of statistics is all about. We're really trying to tackle the, at this point at least, the exploratory data analysis side of things. So at the beginning, when you start to, you just have the data, you don't have necessarily a question you're trying to answer. 
You just want to see what are the actual patterns that are statistically reliably there in the data. That's the exploratory data analysis part that we're trying to tackle. Yeah, let, let me ask you a little bit more about that. So, you know, one of the you know one of the sort of good aspects and bad aspects of um, of the field of statistics is that it sort of acts as gatekeepers for a lot of the larger uh, scientific community, and and this is uh, this is bad in that sometimes it, it makes statistics seem very conservative as a field, but it's also good because it it's it raises the bar for the for the sciences and helps us understand in a single language whether or not different scientific results uh, are. Uh, are are sort of uh, are significant in, in right. both both sort of in the qualitative and quantitative sense of that word. The uh, uh, on the other hand, one of the dangers that that seems like it would exist for for tools that become very widely accessible is that people can go on fishing expeditions and uh, and and wind up uh, sort of not accurately representing the number of different hypotheses about their data, say, that they examined, so that ultimately the sort of gold standard p-value then becomes much less meaningful. Um, how do you expect the, the sort of, in the, you know, in the long view in the auto automated statistician, how do you help, how do you, how do you kind of deal with this, this human nature? Yeah, I mean, like any tool, it can be used well or misused, but we are fundamentally... Uh, trying to make sure that the automatic statistician is rather conservative about its its claims. So one of the things that we care a lot about is not claiming that there is a pattern in the data if there isn't actually a pattern mm -hmm. in the data. So um, there are two ways in which we do that. One of it, one of those is that um, through the search process that the automatic statistician goes through when it evaluates models, it it will uh, it will try very hard using these kind of Bayesian um, Occam's razor principles not to um, suggest models that are overly complicated, that, f that are claiming their patterns that aren't actually there. But on top of that, something that we do which might please statisticians, um, I hope, is that at the end of the report, there's a section called model criticism. Oh. So it's a sort of like... Um, a self-critical part of the report. The automatic statistician has produced the model, has shown you lots of plots and claims about what's going on in the data. Then at the end, um, we have a section where it tries to falsify aspects of the model. It says, I ran a whole bunch of tests to see if any of the claims of my model can be falsified um, uh, through these tests. And that model criticism side is where we bring together the two kind of schools of statistics. Uh, the, the, the model criticism side is actually frequentist classical uh, criticism of the Bayesian model that was um, developed. And so uh, it's, it's very nice because um, we found in many of our reports that the model looks pretty good, and then the model criticism side um, uncovers some weaknesses of the model and the automatic statistician is we're trying to make it kind of as upfront and transparent about its its weaknesses as possible and so um, that's to me one of the interesting parts of the scientific process of building this thing I want to say one more thing which is it's not just that um, I'm trying to build a practical tool but I'm actually using this to um, guide my research thinking because by trying to 
build this very ambitious thing, I'm discovering there are a whole bunch of problems in machine learning that nobody's ever bothered to think about. Hmm. And, um, and you've got to think about those things if you're going to build a system that kind of goes end to end from data to um, insights. So what are those questions? Um, so at a very basic level, um, if somebody has some data, um, the first thing that they often do with that data is they, um, they manipulate the variables. They sort of do some transformations of the variables they have in their data. And they also happen to know, they often know what kinds of variables are in their data. Like, you know, the, w what does that mean? Uh, let's say there's some data and um, in, in one of the columns of, of your data, think of it a, as a spreadsheet, um, you have the word yes or the word no. Okay, so it's, it's strings um, of text, but yes and no is, is what in statistics you would call a binary variable. Mm -hmm. And um, we kind of take that for granted when we do machine learning and statistics, that you're going to know what the type of variable is. You're going to know if something is continuous, if it's a positive variable, like, you know, income would be something that's naturally a positive variable. You know, male, female is a binary variable. We kind of assume all this is known. But the automatic statistician has to figure this stuff out. Like, you know, you just upload a spreadsheet, let's say, and the automatic statistician has to look at these columns and figure out um, whether it's a binary variable or if it's an ordinal variable. That means an ordinal variable is something like uh, low, medium, high. It's kind of ordered but discrete. Um, uh, a categorical variable is like red, green, blue. Um, you how, know. how could you ever tell the difference between an ordinal variable and a, uh, Excel and a categorical variable? Excellent <laughs> question. Variable. We have a paper. This is We have a paper um, at this NIPS conference uh, in the Learning Semantics workshop exactly on how to tell apart between ordinal and categorical variables. And so um, it's an inference problem. You have to try out different statistical models and... Um, look at the evidences for those statistical models, and the ordinal variable will come out uh, if it's ordinal, or it'll come out as categorical. The evidence will come out higher if it's categorical. And so this is a, a, a great example of a place where um, the automatic statistician has informed me, <laughs> in a <laughs> sense, of uh, important research problems that I had, I had neglected and the community had neglected. And... Um, and that's real data science. I mean, one of the things that people say, you know, criticize the machine learning community for repeatedly is this kind of idea that the majority of the work that you actually do is kind of uh, data cleaning of various kinds. And this seems like a great kind of agenda because it, it's literally saying, well, just give me a spreadsheet and I can still do something sensible with that. That's uh, Yeah, it's exactly. I mean, it's, it's data science in the classical sense. Um, I also... I mean, I am still fundamentally interested in artificial intelligence, and I kind of think of this, as I said before, as artificial intelligence in a limited domain of understanding data, although it's not that limited because, you know, <laughs> right. data can mean anything <laughs> and data is everywhere. But, you know, people traditionally think about artificial intelligence in terms of, um, you know, speech and language and robotics and kind of stuff that, you know, normal humans do as we walk around, but I'm thinking about a very special kind of human, a data scientist or statistician. Um, and obviously it's, it's broad in the sense that um, perceptual data is also just data. So maybe some of the insights would carry forth 
to kind of broader artificial intelligence questions. So can you talk about the, the some of the data sets you've been using? Have you been feeding the, the automatic statistician? Yeah, um, uh, there, we, we've done quite a lot of work with time series data sets, as I mentioned before, sort of temporal measurements of things. Um, and for that, um, there are interesting patterns the automatic statistician has found in terms of like um, what's called change points, sort of times at which things change from one kind of behavior to another kind of behavior. Um, but then we put the automatic statistician online and just allowed anybody to upload data. And we got about 3,000 uploads of, you know, we didn't really advertise this, but we got about 3,000 uploads. We've now taken it offline to upgrade it, and we'll put a, a better, more powerful version online soon. But we've been looking at those data sets. It's interesting because these are um, not things we've fed the automatic statistician. Right. These are things that, you know, random people out there who stumbled into this website fed the automatic statistician. And so we have, um, there are two interesting things about this. One of them is that we have a data set of data sets, <laughs> yeah, yeah. in a sense. So we can actually try to understand um, what are, let's say, natural data sets that people might be interested in analyzing. Um, and so that's a very fruitful thing that we're looking at right now. The other thing is that some of these data sets are, are kind of interesting. Uh, I mean, one of them in particular is uh, my, um, uh, my main collaborator, my student James Lloyd, um, uncovered a, a data set that was called Affairs. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, he looked at it, and actually, it, apparently, there's um, some study where they try to predict the number of affairs that people have, extramarital affairs <laughs> that people have, based on variables like religiousness and uh, level of education and occupation and age and uh, the rating they give their marriage and stuff like that. How do they get that past the IRB? I have no idea where <laughs> this data set came from, but it dropped into our lap because uh, somebody uploaded it and... Um, I think it, it might actually be a kind of well-known data set from somewhere. Um, but it's fascinating to see what the automatic statistician comes up with. And, yeah. you know, you can, you can go onto the website and click on that report and see, you know, what the automatic statistician thinks uh, is predictive of how many affairs people have. Well, don't leave us hanging. What does it say? <laughs> well, um, you know, there, there, it's maybe predictable if you uh, rate your marriage highly the chance of having an affair is lower. Um, uh, religiousness um, is also inversely correlated with the number of affairs. Um, a number of affairs maybe increases with age. I'm not sure. I'd have to look at the data. But it's, it's, it's out there. You can look at it. It's kind of interesting. And it's an example of, you know, I don't know if to call it a fun data set, but <laughs> certainly a, an amusing data set to look at. You mentioned James Lloyd as a collaborator. Are there any other people involved in the project? Um, yeah, it's um, uh, the uh, initial project basically started through, um, it's something that I've been interested in for a long time. But when we really got traction was um, when Roger Gross, who was at MIT, came to visit our group. And we got talking about this. Uh, and then James Lloyd and David Duvenot, who were two students in our group, um, uh, really got moving with this and started producing the first system. And um, we've collaborated with Josh Tenenbaum at MIT as well. And so it's been um, that core group at the beginning. And um, James is really pushing this right now. Um, and, uh, you know, 
writing his PhD thesis on this, but also uh, developing a whole bunch of uh, great um, insights and tools out of this. And the team is growing. There are a whole bunch of people in our team uh, at Cambridge uh, who are focusing on developing the automatic statistician, understanding these data sets, and thinking about what are the ne next steps in this kind of work. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. You'll have to let us know when the next one comes online. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I'm, I'm excited to see how it does and what we can build into it. And, you know, really the sky's the limit. We really want to do all sorts of things that um, a, a good machine learning researcher or data scientist would do when they are approached with a new data set. Zubin Garamani of the University of Cambridge talking here about the automated statistician. Yeah, you know, I'll always remember the first sort of two interactions I, I had with Zubin. Mm -hmm. So I was I was an undergrad thinking about where to go for grad school, and I applied to the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit, which mm -hmm. is at the University College of London, and Zubin was faculty there at the time. And I'll always remember sort of the interview that I had uh, with Zubin in which he sort of like led me through some, you know, some ideas surrounding what I, in retrospect, I recognize now as Bayesian optimization, which has actually now become a kind of a large part of my uh, of my research agenda. And then the second interaction I'll always remember was a letter that I got from the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit, which apologized that they would not be able to offer me admission at this time. <laughs> so, oh, no! <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I was... I was planning to go to Cambridge, but the uh, and but yeah. So so the first thing that happened, my my first interaction with Zubin was to get rejected from his graduate program. <laughs> well, uh, it all turned out for the best. I guess so. Who knows? That's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. I'm Ryan Adams. And stay tuned until our next episode. See you then. <laughs>